Hi, this is Dave. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Gil Broza about his new book, Deliver Better Results, How to Unlock Your Organization's Potential. The book's focused on helping organizations improve their value delivery system, and it offers practices you can quickly put into play that will help you understand the fitness for purpose of your system of delivery and how to employ his 10 strategies to improve your level of maturity. During my prep for that interview and all throughout the conversation, there was one thing that was just stuck in my head. None of this is going to work without trust. And I kept wondering how a traditional, potentially toxic organization would be able to turn that corner and suddenly have trust everywhere or enough trust to be able to do the stuff Gil was talking about. So in the middle of that interview, that first interview, I asked him if he'd come back and we could do another one about how to create trust in an organization that doesn't have it. And this podcast is the result of that conversation. So super grateful to Gil for being willing to sit through a second hour of me peppering him with questions. Um, I hope you will find this valuable. I hope you'll find some stuff in here that's applicable in your space. Um, and before we jump into the podcast, I just want to mention a few special classes I have coming up. Uh, on February 29th and March 1st, I will be teaching an ACSPO. That's an advanced CSPO with my good friend, Richard Chang. Uh, that should be a blast because Richard and I have been friends for a while and we always have a great time. We get to give talks together and things like that. So the class should be really fun. I'm going to be doing two in-person classes in March. So I'll be in Atlanta on March 4th and 5th to teach a CSM and 6th and 7th to teach a CSPO. There's links to all of these in the show notes, along with a link to all my other upcoming classes. So uh, if you have some deep burning urge to go to Atlanta or you're already there, uh, I'd love to see you in class uh, on the 4th and 4th through the 7th. So that's it. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hey, welcome to the Reluctant Agilist. I'm Dave Pryor, and Gil Broza is back for a second interview in a row. So, Gil, thank you for subjecting yourself to this follow-up. <laughs> I'm subjecting myself totally willingly. So, in the middle of our last interview about Gil's new book, I asked him, without his foreknowledge, of if he would do another podcast on an ancillary topic that, to me, is deeply woven into this conversation. Um, and that's where we're going to go. So, the book is called Deliver Better Results. Um before I start down the line of questioning, would you mind, and I'm going to ask it in a better way this time, would you mind sharing with these folks um, what you do and why you do it? I help organizations upgrade their agile ways of working so that they deliver better results. I do this by working on the people side of work. I work with leadership. I uh, work on mindset. I work across the system. Uh, it looks like training, coaching, strategic consulting, and, and so on. Uh, I usually work more with leaders than teams. I used to work with teams all the time, but I've been in this space for more than 20 years. And the uh, last 10 or so, I, I work more with leaders because this is really you know, a, a keystone of any change. Okay. And um, how would you, for one of those leaders, how would you summarize the purpose of this book? This book will help the leader change their development organization to the better in terms of better product development, better solution delivery in a healthy environment, gradual change, not big bang scary transformation. 
Okay. At the same time, it's not uh, you know an unending sequence of little tiny continuous improvement bits. So it's strategic changes that uh, the leader would put in place together with their colleagues and peers across the value delivery system uh, to just get better. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. All right. Now I'm going to throw us into the deep end of the pool. Sure. And if you haven't read the book, hold on. Or if you didn't listen to the other interview, hold on, because I'm going to move quickly through a couple different ideas in the book. So okay. in the book, um, Gil starts out in the first chapter by kind of giving a high-level overview of, of everything that's going to be covered. And in there, he talks about fitness for purpose. He talks about his square model. He defines different things to look at so you can do sort of a self-assessment and mm-hmm. figure out where your organization is. And the rest of the book, and this is the part, Gil, you correct me if I'm wrong, the rest of the book, depending on where you are and where you need to go, offers mm-hmm. different plays that you could put into motion to try to help your organization rise to that better better results level or the next mm-hmm. stage. Is yes. that fair to say? So Absolutely. you wouldn't go sequentially from from one all the way through the end. You would pick wherever you are, employ those, and at some point in the future, if you want to move on, then you can. Yes. So there are 10 strategies, sequential and incremental. You apply two or three at a time based on the level you're at. That's the purpose of the assessment. It's not to show you how great you are. It's to help you know, <laughs> because I'm here, I need to do that. Yeah. Okay. So it's not gameable in that sense. All right. Um, <laughs> and real quick, before I go all the way into the deep end of the pool, could you give your explanation of fitness for purpose at an organizational level? So fitness for purpose, as I define it in the book, refers to the construct of the value delivery system. That is this area of your organization that goes all the way from idea to delivery and produces the product that the company wants on behalf of its customers. It's all the um, individual contributors and leads and managers several levels of management, and how everybody works individually and together to achieve those results. So you can think of it going, again, all the way from idea to production or idea to delivery, uh, everything that's involved in producing that product. Okay. Fitness for purpose is how well does this construct help the company, which is the um, enclosing system, so to speak, but is not the focus of the book, how well does it help the company achieve its mission and objectives? And it, there are several aspects to that, which I discuss in the book, such as, you know, to what extent does it actually solve real problems and how timely are its deliveries from the perspective of the recipients? Like, yeah, you solve their problems, but if you deliver it too late for them, that doesn't help them as much. Yeah. And, and a few other aspects. And using a really simple, qualitative, metrics-free uh, assessment, you can tell what level of fitness you're in. And the level of fitness is described by, again, how well it helps the company. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So in, in the model of Square, which we did talked about that on a previous podcast, mm-hmm. you've got these six different aspects to consider, throughput, outcomes, adaptability, timeliness, consistency, and cost effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And what people are going to do is perform a self-assessment on their organization to see where they are. Yes. And, in, in going through the book and in listening to the other interviews that you've done on the book and in the conversation that we had, there was something that kept popping into my head over and over again. 
as leaders are looking at their organization and thinking about how they're going to move it to the next step, and that is trust. Mm-hmm. Trust is all throughout this book, and you even even mentioned it earlier. You talked about um, the trust influence loop. You kind of talked mm-hmm. not directly about it, but mentioned it. Um, the, the things that I wanted to ask you about are like, how does trust show up for these leaders? If, if I am the leader of an organization, wherever I assess my group to be, to get to that next place, there's got to be trust from leadership on down. Mm-hmm from the teams that they're going to be allowed to actually do this stuff this time that for the middle managers that they're not going to be like told, Hey, you're going to be, let's say agile, but we still expect a Gantt chart and a red, amber, green report at the end of every week. Hmm. Um, I I mean, can you just talk about how trust fits in with all this first and then I'll start picking with the other questions. So maybe we should, we should define it first. Okay. Right. Because we use trust in many areas of our lives, but we use it in different, with different, uh, let's say, content, mm-hmm. right? Do I trust my kids to make good choices? Do I trust my spouse to buy the right stuff at the supermarket? Do I trust my individual contributors to do the right work? Do I trust yeah. my middle management to put the change in place that I asked them to? Those are all different. And, and and you could tell me, see if you disagree with this. I can trust that my kid is going to do certain things in a way that she finds acceptable, but I do not find acceptable. There's that too, right? Which goes to the matter <laughs> of boundaries, right? Yes. And you know, it, of course, it touches on you know servant leadership and span of control and, and a whole bunch of things. Now, in the context of work, I can think of trust playing out different ways. The way I defined uh, trust in my book, The Agile Mindset, is assuming that folks will act professionally and in good faith. Uh Okay. Not necessarily that they'll perform perfectly. Yeah. So there's the matter of, do I trust them to act in the best interest of the company, the way they understand it? But there's also trust that they know what they're doing, right? That they're not going to uh, make you know really weird decisions because they're clueless or incompetent or just demotivated or whatever. Yep. Yep. So I, I think we we can never really expect there to be one hundred percent trust whenever there's like more than one person involved. Maybe faith is a better word. Uh, maybe, but you also want it to be founded, and when you're running a business, right? Okay. There's lots at stake. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, okay, so I mentioned, you know, trusting my kids to make good decisions. I mean, they're 20 now, so <laughs> some decisions. So you don't trust them at all anymore. No, no, no I actually do. Because, <laughs> okay, which is interesting because I, I, I trust them because they have demonstrated enough trustworthiness. Okay. And that's a big deal, right? And when you think about it, when we act on this at work, it's the same yeah. thing, right? Maybe we have a new person on the team or new manager, director, VP, doesn't matter. We, we assume a certain trustworthiness on their part, but over time, our uh, perspective of it changes based on what they do. Okay. So is there a difference between trust and expecting consistency? I think, <laughs> good, good question. Uh, I think that the more consistent a person is, the more trustworthy they are. Now, if they're- okay. 
Yeah, because because I, as the truster, would would know what to expect. Now, maybe I hate what I get, but I know what I'm getting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you have an expectation that you trust will be met. Yes, and if a person acts inconsistently, yeah, then that's not really trustworthy. Now. I might then ask, why the inconsistency? Maybe I'm just interpreting things wrong because I'm not in their head. I don't know what's going on there. But, you know, all things being equal, which is nothing we can say in the context of systems, but never mind that. But all things being (laughs) equal, um, maybe, you know, there are inconsistencies that I need to be worried about. or maybe Like at the team level. Sometimes they over-deliver, under-deliver, don't deliver at all. So that brings up the other matter of people's actions being influenced by the environment that they're in. Okay, that's true of an individual, right? That you read about this in the book. Uh, it yeah. came up a lot, actually, in the book. Uh, individuals are subject to influences from multiple environments that they inhabit, right? So there's yep. the team, the company, their family, social circles, um, neighborhood, anything, right? And then you put them in a team, and, and there is interplay between people, mm-hmm. and that's also subject to uh, pressures and uh, incentives and rewards and all sorts of things. Yeah. Having said that, you know, both you and I have been in the space long enough to know that teams generally act consistently. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes they act in ways that we don't appreciate, but then the the effective thing to do would be to try to understand what caused them to act that way. So I'm of the opinion... Uh, Not just force them to act differently. You want to actually understand these people. Understand them, but what I'm saying on understand, it's also... <laughs> it's partly to understand the thought process yeah, and the personality and the abilities, but also understand the pressures and, and again, uh, forces from the outside that influence them. Okay? okay. If a team is yeah. worried that they're going to get cut in the next layoffs, or if they think that, um, you know, when bonuses are handed out or pay raises, that they won't be treated fairly or anything like that, that will affect their behaviors. Okay. This is great. This is, I feel like, I feel it almost like I kind of set you up for this next question. <laughs> okay. Um, you said, assuming folks will uh, act professionally and in good faith. And that is, I'm assuming, well, when you said it, I was thinking that that sounds like something we would be asking a leader to do with the people that work in their organization. Mm -hmm. Yes. But at the individual worker level, for for any group to get to that next stage, they also have to be able to trust that that leader Mm -hmm. and the organization will be acting in a professional and responsible manner and not saying, you know, I want you to pour me a glass of milk, but I'm not giving you a glass or any milk. Um, Yes. So, look, for any, uh, we said this last time, change starts with people, right? Yeah. Uh, If a leader wants to make some change and for the change to be a net positive and sustainable, uh, yes, the people who work in the organization need to trust them, right? Okay. Now, Again, easy to say, no, 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 not hold easy on, hold to on. do. You, you and I again have been in the space long enough to know yeah. that 
team members tell themselves and each other all sorts of stories about leadership. Yeah. All sorts. And yep. they're not always positive. And they're often not true. And not true, right? So some, some is rumor, some is guessing, some is yep. attempting to explain leader behavior just based on... They're just sense-making. It's yeah. sense-making, exactly. It, which is, I think, why we're... Nowadays, we're seeing more and more senior leaders really getting in front of the entire workforce, like in town halls and other situations, and, you know, being more transparent and sharing more information and, you know, really using opportunities that, um, you know, you, you might say, well, couldn't they just send an email and say what they're saying in the town hall? But it's an opportunity to build trust. Okay. Now, is it successful? That, of course, depends. But, okay, here's something I think. The, the more familiarity you have with a person, the more likely you are to trust them, you know, given good evidence, right? So so a team member might trust their team lead or direct manager, right? More mm -hmm. than they trust the director or the VP because they see them a lot less. Sometimes okay. that... Uh, the lack uh, of proximity... Exactly, exactly. It's, it's sort of yeah. a function of distance. And so if there's somebody in higher up in your chain of command that you, you know, you don't see often, you're only on the receiving end of their decisions, you still need to make the decision internally, do I trust them or not? Or to what level? Or with what do I trust them? And there's going to be a lot of guesswork here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, and this may be that I'm just being way too jaded and have, have worked at some less than ideal organizations. The town hall, you brought that up as mm -hmm. an example. So that can be a great way for a leader to create trust. I mean, that's, that's ultimately what I'm kind of trying to chase down here is how does a leader go about creating that trust? And I guess for me, having been at the worker level, been to a lot of town halls mm. with a lot of leaders to use the town hall as a mechanism to try to, it felt like you're pretending there's trust. Like they'll say, well, you know, it, this is the last time ever. Everybody come to me. My door is always open, but it's not. And it's not the last time. And so that is where the behavior, that dependability of the behavior becomes a big part of it. So for all the organizations out there that, want to be able to create the kind of change you're talking about the, in the book mm -hmm. in the absence of trust in a toxic environment in a place where the leaders don't trust they don't demonstrate trust they might say they have it but they don't show it mm -hmm. to the people and the people trust that they can't trust the things they're told um how do you flip that hmm. okay so let's first talk a little bit generally Okay. What builds trust? Okay. okay. Just that. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that's pretty obvious is transparency, right? So when we talk about the town hall, that's sort of a minor example of that. But transparency, which I define as uh, having clarity into why decisions got made the way they were made. Okay. Not just access to information. Right. But Not just the answer, but how you got there. Yes. So transparency builds trust. I mean, everybody knows that. So that, that's one thing. Another okay. one. If you're trying to create an environment where 
teams thrive, mm-hmm. manage at the team level. What we see a lot in organizations instead is managing at the individual level, right? With the individual performance measurements and uh, everything is individual and there's not enough attention to the team level. Uh, so build a system that honors and supports a team. Yes. And, you know, Agile tried to do that, right? We have the team boards, we have team progress, we have team mm-hmm. ideas for improvement, right? Uh, so that's another one. Uh, a third thing that builds trust is providing feedback, both positive and negative. Mm-hmm. First off, of course, it shows you care, right? But that's not enough. If you don't provide feedback, you're implicitly communicating that the person's work or the team's work is perfect. And that is actually rather stressful. Well, or that you don't care enough to be honest with them about it not being perfect. Okay, so I I've, I've, couldn't be bothered. There's the can't be bothered, but there's also the situation where, and, and I've been in this situation myself, like on the receiving end of, um, like, I'll, I'll talk to you if things are bad. But if you don't hear from me, assume they're good, right? I had several managers who work this way. And this is really disheartening, right? Because you just wait for for the hammer to drop, right? I've had several managers where I've gone to them and said, I'm just going to keep doing this until you tell me to stop. Well, there's that too, right? That's sort of the... Yeah, uh, (laughs) the opposite of it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think when... Any person, but let's say leader, provides uh, feedback, whether positive or negative, on a regular basis, that shows that they're present, they're paying attention, they're not taking any everything for granted, they recognize okay. when work is great, and they also recognize when it's not. But if they only recognize when it's not, then it's like, you know, the hammer of the law. And... and <laughs> Okay, that's not something people people want. And and also going back to something I started saying that if they don't say anything, then the person yeah. who did the work and didn't get the feedback assumes that well things were perfect, right? And now I have to put in the same type of performance next time and next time and next time, which is very much a fixed mindset. Yeah, and that creates some of the other challenges that we see in organizations. So I want to share an example of something that happened to me in the last 24 hours where I created something that I, I wasn't, it didn't come out the way I wanted it to. And I shared it with the people that I'm working with. And I asked for, for critical, merciless feedback, because for me, I would always rather you hurt my feelings fast mm-hmm. and you know what you meant than me have to decipher it over mm-hmm. time. And part of me being able to ask for that meant I had to decide that I'm going to trust Mm -hmm. that this group of people will look at this imperfect thing and realize that it's going to get better over time. Mm. And, and they will invest the effort to give me the critical feedback, which they will trust that I will take and improve. And like, I consciously went through that in my head and that it was really risky Mm. because I trust this group of people to give me that feedback. But uh, even though it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a positive. There was a lot of <laughs> negative in there, but I needed yeah. it, and it did. That was a very trust-building activity for me. I mean, it made me I'm just grateful. You know, this reminds me of something I said in, in that book, The Agile Mindset, where I said, well, asking for feedback is like going to the doctor. We, we know we should, 
but we don't wanna. Yeah. And then yeah. they tell us something, and we say, um, maybe not. Maybe I'll get a second opinion. Right. Sometimes we don't act on what they tell us. It's it's a difficult situation to be in, and, and really the the best way to kind of deal with the deal with it, and you know, just eat the frog and just keep asking, keep asking, and eventually you'll be good. Feedback will be real. You'll be good because you become sort of immune to the the kind of the low of hitting getting the bad feedback or or because it just gets better uh no it's because you get used to you get used to bad feedback which okay. also supports a growth mindset and there's a there's a good virtuous cycle there yeah um but how much is that a part of all this like that idea of if you were able to instill a growth mindset even in an organization that didn't have trust then you would hopefully be able to inspire the people to believe, okay, maybe we, it is kind of toxic right now, but we believe it can get better. So there's that, but I, I want to actually point something out here. You say even in an organization that doesn't have trust, but every organization has some. Okay. And it's not right. evenly distributed. Fine. But every organization mm-hmm. has it. I mean, think about it. You hire someone. That person went through a bunch of interviews and screenings and onboarding, probably not by you, by HR or some other managers and so on. You you sort of trust them to have done their work properly and brought the right person in and onboarded them properly. That's just the first step. And then the person starts you know, performing their duties and, and tasks and being part of a team and whatever. And even when we look over their shoulder we still kind of let them do their work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like we're standing over people's shoulders all the time and say, hey, you should not have written that letter there. Change that letter. We, we don't do that. Yeah. right? So we do have trust in people doing their work to some extent. We still mm-hmm. build many mechanisms to check that work, which is probably not a bad idea because people make mistakes whether alone or in a team, mm-hmm. right? If they didn't, why do we have QA? Well, we do need QA, right? And then we trust QA, right? <laughs> well, and also we trust that the people, even with their best intention and they're you know, doing the, the work as, as well as they can, people make mistakes. It's part of why the whole thing is iterative, everything that we're doing. We know that we don't know it all. We know that we're not going to see everything. We know that people make typos. That happens. Yes. Now, Okay, so when you're saying this, you're communicating an agile mindset. But if you think sure. back to your, uh, well, I mean, you said you're a recovering PM, right? I'm not recovering. I still, <laughs> I am a project manager till the day I die. Whoa, there goes my microphone. Till the day I die. <laughs> I have both brains inside my head. Okay. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> well, but I also would, I could argue with you for an hour that Frederick Taylor was an Agilist. Okay. So maybe we won't do a sequel about <laughs> that, right? But if you think back 30, 40 years to how software development yeah. was managed back then, and it did have a lot to do with Taylorism, right? And breaking the work down into its small constituent parts and little functions and little tasks and, you know, the whole production line mentality. Yeah. We ran this practically without trust. We built trust into the process. You did some work. Somebody else tested yes, it. Yes, you trust. Yes. 
And I trust that that person, if I don't give them very clear instruction, will do bad things. Okay, but you also built no, but you also built mechanisms to make sure that the work came out correctly. And, and again, that's yeah. quality assurance and and so on. And what we do these days, we trust people more, but we still build mechanisms into the system of work into our technology to protect ourselves. For instance, you run an automated test suite before deploying your product. Why do you do that? Because the work is crazy complex because even the smartest people would have not been able to capture all of it in their heads and made their changes in exactly the way that would be totally safe. You want to make sure. Yeah. Okay. So we build mechanisms into the process, but they look like different mechanisms. They are different mechanisms from what we did back when we didn't assume trust at all. For instance, another one is we put people in teams. And we're saying, Mm -hmm. okay, yes, we trust you to do your work, right? But again, the work is complex and all of that jazz. Mm -hmm. Work with others closely enough so that you catch each other. Extreme programming, that was the big deal with pair programming, right? You catch each other. And a lot of agile teams these days, that's exactly what they do. And the reason people mm-hmm. sit in close quarters until COVID, uh, right? <laughs> that was so that they can notice what else is going on and have mm-hmm. basically friction-free communication with their colleagues so that, yes, they get questions answered, but they can also catch each other when they fall. Mm-hmm. So now you, yeah, yeah, I like the way. Oh, good. So now you you have also the matter of does team member A trust team member B? Yeah, which is not an obvious thing. Um, it's definitely not an obvious thing when team member B joined the team because somebody hired them, and team member A had no clue that that was happening and had no say in this. So now you look at companies where they do more collaborative hiring, and you know teams kind of vet yeah. the new candidates and. Maybe there's an audition or something of that nature. And what that does, actually, it gives you a nice shortcut. If you think of the Tuckman model, it gives you a nice shortcut uh, you know, through the storming stage. Yeah. So there was a thing, uh, I interviewed Ron Jeffries one time, and um, I tell this story in my class. I said, I asked him, I was trying to get him to tell me it was okay to not be the scrum police anymore as a scrum master. And I said, don't you think that the team members should hold each other accountable? And I was totally expecting Ron to be like, yes, because yes, you I know how Ron is. And Ron looked at me with his eyes got all big and he looked at me and he said, no, they should hold each other up. And I was like, oh my God, like that is the sweetest, kindest thing I've ever heard come out of his mouth. But <laughs> that is a really powerful thing. And, and exactly, I think what you're describing here is where we we not just catch each other we lift right each other. now lifting each other is something that you do once the team has normed right if the team is storming you're not going to get that effect because in storming okay. like the, the the one big hallmark of storming is that not everybody legitimately wants to be a member of that team or they haven't made that determination yet this is something i teach in my leadership courses and people are like what the like in norming, okay. everybody wants to be a member of the team, but in storming, you have at least one who is not entirely there or not willingly and is not considering that, yes, I want to be 
a colleague of these people. Maybe it's just a matter of time, but sometimes there's something deeper going on. That's why yeah. storming to norming is really a phase transition. It's not just a give it time type of thing. Um, so the lifting up happens once the team has normed. But I do want to okay. uh, touch on a word that you said there, which is accountability and holding mm. each other accountable. And the way I teach this in, in my classes is trust is the opposite of that. Okay. I will hold yeah, you accountable, meaning I have some expectations from you. You need to act a certain way. Maybe I'm your boss, maybe your colleague. It doesn't actually matter for this purpose. Mm -hmm. But I expect you to act, and you know I'll get on your case if you don't. Yeah. Whereas trust is, so, is the opposite in that, no, I trust you to do what you said, but I also trust you to come to me when there are issues and maybe seek my help yeah. or... Uh, if I, let's say I'm your manager, then, you know, point out trouble when you see it, right? Ask me for my help, ask for opinions, um, options, all of that. And yeah. one, one huge challenge organizations have, especially with an agile transformation, is letting go of the, the accountability mindset and switching mm -hmm. that over to trust. And that's why it is so foundational in, in everything. We're, we're so used to apportioning work and, and this yeah. holding accountable. Now, I, I'm sure we have some listeners who are hearing accountability and thinking, no, but accountability is good, right? We want people to be accountable. And, and to them, I want to say that I, I define it um, more in line with what we've learned from Christopher Avery that what we what we uh -huh. re actually want from people is responsibility right the rising yeah. to the occasion the taking ownership the you know put it back fix it apologize you know make things better as opposed to the um what he calls in his model obligation which is really how accountability mm -hmm. manifests itself you hold me accountable so now i feel obliged to perform but i hate you <laughs> yeah so, so just really quick, after you read Gill's book, you should go by the responsibility process oh, yes. by Christopher. Yeah, that, that yeah. one's a life changer. And okay, and <laughs> yes. by the way, by the way, um, we're going various places today, which I love. Um, I first heard Christopher, <laughs> who I consider a good friend, uh, I think in two thousand five. So I heard one of his presentations on responsibility. It took me several. It, it, I heard it several times before I, it actually sank in. My kids were only yeah. two, three years old at the time. That made me a better parent, even though the context in which I learned this was the context of work. Yeah. So when it comes to you know servant leadership and trust and, and all of that, uh, we can take lots of lessons from parenting and vice versa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I work in an organization that is... Um, makes frequent use of the word accountable. Mm -hmm. So there's the language aspect that has to change. Mm -hmm. But even if I change it from accountability to trust or some other word, there's still that deeply burned in lingering trauma from Frederick Taylor's time mm. where people have to, I mean, to really be able to trust, you're going to mm -hmm. have to change. It's not only see change in others, but deep internal change as well. Like, how does a leader go about creating that for themselves? Meaning, how, how does a leader learn to trust their people? Yeah. Is, is that what you mean? Yeah. yeah. And not just say it, but like, honestly, truly mm. trust them. Mm. 
Well, hmm. I think there is definitely a um, leap of faith here. Okay. Now, the other thing is, and and that is true of every change, definitely in leadership, and that's Mm self-awareness, right? So, you know, leaders don't go around saying, hey, I trust John, but I don't trust Mary. And like this, they'll just speak about this. It's not a matter of conversation per se, but they act on it. They act on how... Maybe not even being aware of it. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So... One of the first things I would suggest, and that's really a coaching suggestion, but people can kind of coach themselves on this one, is just be aware of your behaviors towards people, what you mm-hmm. say and don't say, what you do and don't do, and simply ask yourself uh, where, where they come from. And if specifically what you're looking at is improving your trust, try to understand what in your behavior was actually driven by trust or lack thereof. For instance, if you have uh, somebody on your team and they're supposed to do something, Mm -hmm. some task, and you find yourself going to them every day asking for status, Mm -hmm. maybe on the third day you catch yourself and you say, what's going on here? Why am I asking them for status every day? Now, there could be many reasons. And and one of the reasons could be that... um, you don't trust them. Another one could be because the matter is super urgent. Yeah. But even then, you might say, well, maybe I can change it around so that I trust them to keep me posted. Okay. And I trust them to understand the significance and urgency of the thing so they keep me posted more frequently or something like that. But this actually brings up another thing, which is if you think about a certain person, let's say someplace in the chain of command, Mm -hmm. their trust of the people who work for them is partly driven by their own fear of the people above them. Exactly. Yes. Yes. That's that's the whole reason for this conversation. Yes. Yes. So you should always assume that there is fear in the organization and forward-looking leaders, they recognize it and try to mitigate it and, and create conditions that allow people to move despite it. Okay. Right? And not just be busy for the sake of looking accountable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, this I'm just going to throw this out there because it's what came into my head when you were talking. Um, let's say I work in an organization that is pretty low trust and I'm mm-hmm. a leader. Do you think it would make sense you know, a company's trying to transform to agile, whatever, whatever yeah. um, to acknowledge on that transparency side of things. Like this is a pretty low trust organization. And the journey that we're on right now is to learn how to trust one another. Mm-hmm. I, as a leader, have internal work to do. You as team members have internal work to do. Yeah. We have to negotiate that trust. We have to build that trust. And that because everything that you have in the book to me is all so deeply rooted in that foundation of that trust. Like yes to everything in the book, but if you can't get the trust, I can't see. Okay. So let me speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So the book is about how you gradually get better, right? If you look at what I suggest for going up from level one to level two, and level two yeah. to level three. Most organizations are about level two. 
Can you explain what those two things are to the folks? That are yeah. Listening? So a level one fitness is when um, the system is just not able to help the company with its mission and objectives. I mean, people kind of work and they have some successes, but largely it feels like they cannot succeed. Mm-hmm. And a level two, uh, there is... Um, the system is contributing, right? Management is not looking elsewhere to get its needs met, but it's just not effective enough and it is not efficient enough. Uh-huh. It's constantly behind. And there are two strategies in level one that will get you to level two, and two strategies in level two that will get you to level three. And level three is is better, much, much better. Um, there's definitely a lot more reliability in there, and you know, it's 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 holding up nicely. Those four strategies you can actually carry out without trust. Hmm. Okay. You can also carry them out with just the lowest levels of psychological safety. Okay. You know, there are four levels of psychological safety, like in Timothy Clark's model, mm-hmm. and uh, th- they ended up corresponding super neatly to the levels I have in fitness. Uh, so to get out of level one, you need to build inclusion safety, and and for to get out of level two, you need to build learner safety. Uh, but but also in terms of trust, y- you can do with low levels of it. Let me explain what they are. So to get out of level one, you need to manage your project portfolio strategically, mm-hmm. and for capacity, basically don't overwhelm people. So they're they're always trying to dig themselves out of a hole and just. Don't succeed. Yeah. And the other one is to organize the system, you know, team topology process, way of working, so that it's even suitable for what you're trying to accomplish. Okay. And if you are working in an environment that is generally low trust, you can still have cross-functional teams. You can still have short cycles. Uh, Will that be as great as it is when there is trust? No. But but it's enough so that at least the work the teams are doing is sort of appropriate. Sure. Now, to get out of level two to level three, you need to do two things. One is every decision needs to have a home, right? So anytime decisions are made in the system, you should know who makes them and how. Could be individuals, could be teams, could be with consensus, could be with leader decides with buy-in. It doesn't matter. Just make sure that decisions just don't kind of evaporate. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Or or that you know you overturn them because the wrong person made them. Or you you make it and and the second there is contradicting evidence, you 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 walk it back. Yes. Uh, So there's that. And the second one is to stabilize the system, which is to create a good balance between supply and demand, demand being the requirements, roadmap features, and all that. And and, uh, so that's demand and supplies what you deliver. Mm -hmm. You can do this with low levels of trust. Okay. Now, what will that look like? It will probably look like people telling each other what to do. (laughs) And a lot of metrics, too. Um, Well, if you follow what I say in the book, you actually have. I know. Very few I know you're metrics. not. You're not a big. You're not a big metrics guy. But but that. No, but I, I don't find them necessary for that. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Okay. That, that, that's why. Uh, it's not that I'm opposed to them in principle. I just want people to know that they're playing with fire. <laughs> that's. <laughs> but why. if you want to, go ahead. Go ahead. Go, go for it. Yes. Some people play with fire and make a good. You know, make a good yeah. living doing that. Um. But that's a whole se- separate sequel, right? So. <laughs> uh, so it might look like uh, project managers, delivery managers, RTEs, 
uh, directors, whatever, basically directing. Mm-hmm. It can look like that. And maybe people are saying, well, you know, it's, it's a grind and whatever, but you can actually get to level three this way. And in level three, you know, you have a system that generally performs okay. Now, if you look yeah. inside, you see, well, it's only at level three because effectively we have the key person risk. We have just a few people who make all the big decisions and everything yeah. hangs on them. And if we move them or they leave or they get sick or whatever, uh, we're going to have trouble here. But it's really once you get to level three and you want to get even better than that to really get the ROI on all the people you employ, right? Um, this is when you need to invest a whole lot more on the human side of the system, uh, which is okay. why you know the first strategy to do in level three is to amplify you know safety, teamwork, and collaboration. Okay. Yeah. So the people that want the promise of agility. It's not really going to start to show up until level three. I mean, there, not that you're not going to see improvement. Oh, you'll but, see improvement. Oh, yeah. But but it's not going to really start to hum until you get to level three. Yes. So you know what you know us um, agilists, especially from you know the XP days, what we call the agile buzz. Remember that? Like when okay. the team the team is kind of humming, right? Um, <laughs> My early extreme programming experiences did not involve humming of any kind. Okay. Or buzzing. <laughs> or buzzing. Buzzing. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, look, I was a member of teams like that. I coached teams like that. It, it's a high beautiful High performing side. teams. It's high performing teams. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Uh, but a high performing waterfall team is very different from a high performing agile team in terms of the dynamics, the just being there. Uh, you you kind of sense yeah. it differently. They respond differently. They adapt differently. Right? So it's not just high performance because look at how many lines of code they wrote, which is the silliest metric. Right, right. Right. Okay. Right. So you know, in the in the agile space, when we talk about what, what we what we want for organizations, the, the, mm-hmm. all this agile goodness, what we're really thinking about is like levels four and five. But and, and for many years what we try <laughs> Places to Places that don't suck. No, levels four and five are like, you know, <laughs> be really good. Right? We wanted to take we, we, all our coaches and trainers and, yeah, yeah. and whatnot, right? We wanted to help organizations move from whatever they have, which in many cases is not great, to yeah. something really great. And we have 20 years of lots of empirical evidence showing that mm-hmm. y- you don't hyperspace there. And, and it doesn't what just it, happened, yeah. Yeah, so, so the, 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 the point of the book was to give you a roadmap to get there. And the roadmap actually starts by First, fix the house, then make it nice. Okay. Stop the bleeding and then get them healthy. So, so the trust is something that you can build along the way. Yes. By through actions, taking the actions that are that are defined in those first two stages. Okay. Yes. For instance, just as a really simple example, one of the best approaches to stabilize a system is to limit whip. Okay, we've heard this one before. You can demonstrate, as a leader, you can demonstrate trustworthiness if you don't mess with the whip, right? If you say, oh, yeah, yeah, you can put limits on there, but... Any, except for me. Except for me. Or <laughs> I'll, I'll violate the limit whenever I, I see the need, and it's just going to be like that, which is not yeah. transparent. Okay. okay. So it's okay to occasionally exceed your whip limit if you make a good case. 
That's transparent. People say, and, okay. And yeah. they retro on it right afterwards to figure out why yes, it happened of course. in the first place. Of course. Yeah. Okay. So one last question on this, and I don't and I don't know how you're gonna respond to it. Um is there a way to assess the level of trust? Is that necessary? Or is it is it something that's going to come along with going through these different steps? Like, is it something that I don't need to worry about because it is where it is. I can't just magically change it. Um, I'm going to start to change. Let me try to think how to say this. I'm going to start to take care of the different symptoms. Mm -hmm. And as those symptoms are resolved, the trust will grow organically because of that. I, I think it's uh, both ends. I think, okay. um, look, wherever you are right now, it would be good to assess how things are in the system. Mm -hmm. Then we'll talk about how to do that. And then you want to put some changes in, you know, in place and make things better. And through your actions, trust should grow. Now, but if your okay. starting point is like really low trust and, and you think that this is going to hurt your change efforts, you probably want to delay some of the other improvements until you stop the bleeding, like you said. Okay. okay? Yeah. So how, how do you even tell whether trust is present in the system or not? One, way, one place to look is the feedback loops used in the system. Okay. Okay. Automated testing is a feedback loop. Code reviews are a feedback loop. One-on-ones. Uh, there is a whole bunch. Okay, So you want to yeah. look at how does the system get feedback on its actions and its mm -hmm. decisions. And what do those feedback loops signal? Okay. Yeah. For instance, if we have a really good automated test suite, Mm-hmm. That's a signal, usually a really positive one. Mm -hmm. Okay. But if we have a code freeze and three weeks of regression testing during which <laughs> thou shalt not touch the code, yeah. that's probably lower trust. All the code that was declared done. Yes. <laughs> as soon as we fix it. Yes. Now, you might say, well, but of course, we have to have code freeze and we have to regression test. And if you have like really valid reasons, yes. But like we said before, if you unpack them, if you mm -hmm. unpack your reasons and you realize, no, it's because, you know, a year ago we had this Maverick developer and he stuck things in in the last moment and then it broke in production. And since then we've yeah. put policies in place and, you know, nothing will ever escape anymore. That signals no trust. So trauma, yes. learned trauma in the organization creates a lack of trust. That's, Absolutely. Okay. Yes. And and that trauma actually, um, just like with people, uh, it survives for many, many years, even if the leadership changes. I mean, it's what drove Taylor's work. Yeah. The fear of people being slack when they came and not doing what they were supposed to, you know, not, not working as hard as they could. Yeah, but think about it. You know, trauma gets baked into culture. And so even if leadership mm -hmm. changes, I mean, leaders, in in individual change happens over time, the stories persist, right? Yeah. Okay, so you look at the uh, feedback loops. Another thing you do with the feedback loops is you look at how they're used. Are they used to control the system? Are they used to steer the system? Or... They're used to understand the system. Right. Or, or to understand. 
or are they used by the teams to self-serve? Okay. For instance, you... Um, Which is them stepping up yeah, into this yeah, new way. Yes, yes. Okay. So, for instance, um, we run lots of uh, analyses on code uh, as we build it, like, you know, Sonar, or I'm mm-hmm. not sure what the tool is these days. That tells us what shape the thing is in. Well, not entirely, but you know, gives us good information about this, and we can look yeah. at the numbers. We don't need to go to the CEO and say, "Hey, what should we do?" Right? We can self-serve. So that's one okay. thing to help us know if trust is present or not. Uh, another one is simply people's behaviors. Okay. I mean, that one's pretty self-evident, right? If you see behaviors that are basically, um, you know, protecting oneself yeah. then you can tell that there's not a whole lot of trust but but again uh, there are situations where you do need to check things even though people have done them like trust and verify right because mm-hmm. the risk factor is just too high and that's okay yeah. that's okay right so all of these that that's the thing with everything we've said here right you you, you there's a lot of um, uh, presenting symptoms and such but the underlying yeah causes and reasons that they can be both positive and negative and sometimes both at the same time yeah uh and the third thing i would say for you know telling whether trust is present or not is look at the actions and responsibilities that managers undertake and maybe also some of the senior individuals that could otherwise be made by delegation or by teams Okay. Uh, let me put this in plainer English. If you have a manager, say, um, I don't know, review data. Reviewing timesheets. Uh, yeah, but, but but not even timesheets. I mean, anything really that they take on themselves that really their team could have done for themselves. And then there would be mm-hmm. shorter delays and all the good lean stuff. Again, you can ask, why is the manager doing this? It could be fear about the top. It could be mm-hmm. something else. Uh, but if it's something that the teams could do, but the manager is preventing that, there's probably some low trust going on there. And and they're they're fostering that. It perpetuates itself. Lack yes, of trust. yes, yeah. yes. It's a reinforcing loop. This was great. I, I am. So this has been an amazing conversation. I, I love I'm it. Super grateful to you for yes. for being for trusting me with with my request <laughs> for this. So this was really oh, cool. So, so let's um, say something about that. I trust yeah. you because I know you, right? Yeah. Uh, even though, other than the interviews, it's not like we've worked together. Nope. But there is a mechanism built into the process that increases my trust. It's called editing. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and you and you and th- that is. I'm glad that you said that because that is a big part of how I do this that is intended to create safety for the people I interview that not only will I edit it, but I'm going to ask you to approve it yes, before I post it. Exactly. So, cool. So, all right. So, um, why don't you plug the book and everything else that you have going on Ooh. really quick before we close it out? Okay. So, the book, again, called Deliver Better Results. You can buy it anywhere online. Um you can also get to chapter one of the book. We said this in the last podcast, but we'll say it here again. So the URL for that is in English. It's heardonpodcast.deliverbetterresultsbook.com. The idea with chapter one is to give you this foundation of what the model is, 
Um, it's sort of an executive summary. Um, if you read this book and you say, my boss has to read this, but your boss is too busy, they will read chapter one because it's only 20 minutes. Uh, otherwise, I'd love to hear uh, from people on LinkedIn. There is my website, uh, 3pvantage.com. Uh, there is a course coming about the uh, book to help cool. people kind of work through the levels. Uh, yeah, the more people I get to talk to about this, the better. I mean, this is my this is my life's work. <laughs> so I'm going to put links to all that, and I'm also going to include links to the other interviews that you've done on the book because I I found them to be really fascinating because every one of them. It's a completely different conversation. Yes. Um, Even though they're all presumably about the book, there's so much in it. Totally different angles on it. Yes. Yeah. It was really good stuff. So, yes. Um, and thank you very much, Gil. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm.